Welcome to the Physiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the early Christian movement. Today, we are here with Michael, our resident physiologist, Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And I am Matt Till, uh, lead pastor of Restoration Church in the Chicago suburbs. It is good to be with you guys today. And Michael, I just want to kick it off right away. We're going to get right into our topic for this morning. And that is, Michael, what is God's will for my life? <laughs> well, what a great question, man. I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> I'm having a bit of a, a, a moment today and I'm feeling a little lost and I just need to know what is God's will for my life? Yeah. Um, oddly enough, Matt, uh, this is actually an intervention. Uh, I know you think you're leading us into this, but Michael and I wanted to talk to you today. That's right. We both love you, uh, Matt, and, uh, and we have a plan for your life. I think my mom is calling. I'll be right back. Oh, <laughs> uh, what a fantastic question, though. You know, uh, what is God's will? And we often take that question uh, personally and uh, ask it of ourselves. What 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 does God want us to do? in our lives and, and, uh, how can we figure that out? I'm curious about you guys. Um, I know we're going to get into Ephesians chapter one and we've been waiting for this moment. I know, uh, we've been building up to this as we've talked so much about the launching of that movement in, in Acts, uh, beginning in Acts 18, 18 through uh, chapter 19. And, uh, and now we're looking at the grounding of it. What, what were those core things that Paul taught that church that helped that church to continue and to grow um, and to disciple uh, people so that more and more people would worship God? And, and so now we're here uh, looking at the letter to the Ephesians. And it's a great letter, and and this is really what started the whole uh, idea of ephesiology, is uh, what was it that Paul was attending through this letter? And I know, you know, many people have thought of that uh, letter to the church in Ephesus as being a, a model for uh, the study of what the church actually is. And we do see throughout the whole letter uh, the different functions of the church. We see its mission function. We see its uh, ecclesiastical function. Um, we see the, uh, the different parts of the leadership of a church there and how the body of Christ should interact together. But um, it was maybe a year ago or so that as I was rereading the letter, I began, to, I just got stuck on chapter one. And um, it's been more than a couple of years ago now. I would say it's been a bit. Yeah. Um, I got stuck on chapter one by a phrase that Paul uses four times or a word that Paul uses four times. And that word is uh, will and always in reference to God's will. And so he uses it in, in regards to himself in verse one. And then again in verse um uh, verse five, the purpose of his will and verse eight, the mystery of his will. And then uh, one more time in verse 11, the counsel of his will. And, uh, and, you know, as we know, in biblical studies, whenever we see something repeated frequently, um, it, it typically should capture our attention and make us ask the question, you know, what's going on there? That why is it that the author has to repeat something similar uh, so often in, uh, in, in, you know, in what really amounts to almost one uh, single sentence here. Um, 
And so it struck me that I needed to give some more thought to the question of God's will. This always seems like that this becomes the natural place to which uh, really any believer on their journey gets to, where we get to the place where we have received or we, we perhaps we've, re- we've received Christ and uh, his Holy Spirit. We've come to understand God and his great, you know, his goodness and his greatness for us in our life. And then we get to the place where we're submitting ourselves to his work, to his power and his might and to his sovereignty over all things. And then we get to that place of going, then he must have a will. He must yeah. have a will what for us. What does he want us. me to do now? Yeah, he wants me to do something now, right? It's not now he is, he is my Abba. He is my father. And he is the one who's leading and directing. And he is now the, the keeper of my soul. And so uh, now what do I do with, you know, what, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Where do I direct my life? If I once was living for myself and I'm now living for him, what is his will, right? And here we get to the Ephesians, and, you're, and, and Paul is just so articulately clarifying in four different ways of God's will. Okay, so yeah. I want to I divert with this exact question and say, you just, you just said, he articulately says it. He makes it really clear. And Michael, and you, and I, and I think Christians for centuries have continued to wrestle with this. So is it? <laughs> So crystal clear, Matt. Like, uh, <laughs> how I, clear I, is it? Yeah. Well, I think what's complicated is exactly that, Andrew. That uh, Christians and theologians for centuries have been wrestling with this question of God's will, and we tend to approach it by um, by you know uh, uh, trying to articulate it in different ways. While there's a permissive will uh, of God, there is um, define them as you go. Yeah, the, right. I knew you were going to ask me that. I wasn't hey, ready to define those things. That's, come on now. Big words need definitions. <laughs> uh, the, what, what will God permit me to do? Uh, what falls within the, kind of the boundaries of what could be God's will? Mm. And then there's the declarative will of God, you know, what it is that God has made absolutely clear. And, uh, and it's interesting because we can certainly get to these places in Scripture, asking the questions about God's permissive will and His uh, declarative will, and and so on, and His sovereign will. Um, and uh, but I, I always take a step back and ask: Are these things that the the authors of the texts are trying to get us to ask? And um, and to be honest, I and this is what got me as I was reading through. Uh, again, uh, Ephesians chapter one was, I don't know that Paul's trying to get us there. I, I don't think it's that complicated. And remember, you know, we're talking about the first century Christianity uh, in the first century Roman empire and scholars uh, will attest to um, the literacy rate at this time of being somewhere uh, around 10% of the Roman empire. That, do- that doesn't mean that 90% of the Roman empire was right. ignorant uh, but but that just wasn't a form of learning. I mean, the, the, the writings, they're not having books, they're not writing articles, they don't have newspapers and these types of things. And so the access to writing and the need for that in a predominantly agrarian uh, culture was, was just not there. Um, intellectually, yeah, they had the capacity to wrestle with some of these deep and profound theological the themes, especially that we see emerging out of the movement in Ephesus. And, um, and yet at the same time, they have to be simple. 
they have to they have to be able to communicate and be understood. And so they weren't that complex that people couldn't understand uh, what Paul was intending by, uh, in the case of Ephesians chapter one, bringing up this topic so many times. Michael, you mentioned there's uh, these different types of wills uh, in which we see in Ephesians chapter one. So verse one, verse five, verse nine and 11. Are there four different wills or is it all reference to the same thing? Yeah, well, and that was the question that I started to ask. Does God have multiple wills? And of course, theologically speaking, the, the theologians have said, well, yes, there's, the, like I mentioned before, the declarative, the permissive, the sovereign will of God. There are probably a couple others that theologians have thrown in there as well. But as I was looking at this text, I'm, I'm thinking, well, no, I, I think that Paul's talking about one will here. And um, and yet, and and again, this is, getting back to some of the core thinking of a physiology um, that when we begin to turn the way in which we read that scripture back to God and make it a theocentric reading, then the question of God's will uh, is just that it's his will. What is his will? And yet what happens so often in our reading of scripture is that we begin to turn it back to us and it becomes anthropocentric. And so we ask the question, well, what is God's will for me? And this is an interesting passage, of course, because it's here that we have the ideas of, uh, of election, of predestination, of adoption. And w- when we read those as people in, in an anthropocentric way, then the focus becomes on, on me. So I have been elected, uh, I have been predestined, and I have been adopted. And the natural question then is, well, well, for what have I been elected? For what have, or for, yeah, for what have I been predestined? Uh, for what have I been adopted? And, uh, and then we turn that question to us. Well, God must have a will for me. And so what is God's will uh, then for me? And I don't think that's what Paul is asking here. Um, at all. I, I think that is, is uh, t- turning the text to us rather than pointing it to God. And so when we have a theocentric perspective, and, and we're reading Ephesians chapter 1 as uh, focusing on God, then the question becomes, what is God's will, question mark, full stop, period. I mean, that, that is it. That is the question that we have to answer. What is his will? Not his will for me or his will for the church or his will for my family or or whatever, or his will for my church or my organization. It's what is his will, full stop. Hmm. Because then it's almost like when we're talking about that theocentric thing, all the while we're almost asking it when we ask the anthropocentric angle, what's God's will for me? I exist kind of in a camp over here. And then, so I say, okay, God, it, it, it really does sound awful, but it's just like, uh, God, how are you serving me? So what mm-hmm. is, how, how can you get on my page it is in one way. And so then when we ask it on an organizational or an institutional level, what we're saying is this is what we think, this is what we want to do. This is what we have seen as successful and good. Okay, so God, what do you want us to do or rather how do you want to use us, this massive organization? Instead of, again, as you're say, stating, Paul is writing with the intent, a clear reading of the text. 
is how, what is God doing and how do we join him in whatever he is doing for his will? How can we bring him glory? How can we honor him? How can we, with the fullness of our being, do what God has already set us apart to do? Yeah, exactly. And I think that you hit on something that's important here because you, you're talking about churches and organizations trying to figure out what God's will is for them. And so you go on any church's website or you look at their constitution or, or whatever, you're always going to see some sort of vision statement and mission statement. Including and, my church. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, including the organization I work with and I'm sure Matt uh, Restoration Church at one point uh, wrestled through a vision statement and a mission statement statement. I mean, that's typical, um, the protocol, if you will, for any church is to try to figure this out. I mean, and after all, I mean, the church is using kind of a business model. And so businesses have a vision and a mission and so on. And so we naturally, at least in the West, um, are, are asking that same question, then what is God's will for my church, my mission, uh, and then what is God's will for my life? And uh, to be honest, I don't think that that's the question that Paul is asking here. And um, it, because it does turn the attention back to us. And instead, I think what you brought up, Andrew, is the, the proper question or the proper response is how do we join God's will? Because God's will is clear. And we'll see that as we get into uh, uh, the text here in chapter one. God's will is crystal clear. And um, we are to participate in it. And now the question becomes, what does that look like? I, I want to share this anecdote. When uh, my wife and I were in Flagstaff, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were in a season of a lot of change. Um, we had moved out there to plant a church, and I had taken a job at a company. And uh, my daughter, my eldest daughter, was not even er. She was uh, almost a year old. And uh, in that time, uh, no, she was a year old. In that time, uh, we lost our church. Something awful happened. And uh, so we stepped away uh, from that situation. So the reason that we moved out to Flagstaff was to uh, plant a church and tell everybody about Jesus. And so we lost the church. And I lost my job. And so kind of the two things that were like, well, at least I have these two sure things going. They were gone. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was asking an elder at the new church that we were a part of and had been growing in. Um, I'd kind of come to him with, with essentially this exact question. You know, what is God's will for us? What is God's, what are we supposed to do now? You know, we had had all these dreams and aspirations those had been shattered. Hmm. And now what do we do? And I asked him in my very uh, youthful way with great eagerness and concern, oh, no, like what if, what if we don't take the right job? What if we don't go in the right direction? What's going to happen? What's God's will? And I was doing a lot of hand-wringing about it. And uh, John Dyer is his name. And with complete calm, and wisdom, he kind of looked at us and he said, well, I think you're, I don't really see it like that. He said, I'm pretty sure that you guys love Jesus and whatever you take to, 
you're going to be about his will. You are going to be about glorifying and honoring him. And so I wouldn't stress so much about finding the perfect situation. It's really more about wherever you're going, pursue what is about him. Hmm. And so I have, again, tones of home. I have, I have memories of others already saying this to somebody who is like me, who wants to put that particular thing, find my exact place and purpose. And I've already been told multiple times, I think you're asking the wrong question. Uh, what does it look like to chase after God's will and just mm-hmm. honor him in all things? Yeah, neat. And it, you know what? That is such a liberating place to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? I, I mean, I, I know at least for me, I, I, I know what God's will is. And uh, I just need to participate in it and uh, where that is and the details of it. um, I'm not that concerned about. And there is, there is a liberating uh, feeling when the focus is completely on the Lord. He's the sovereign Mm -hmm. one. He's the one that's done this choosing, predestining, adopting uh, to to make us blameless and righteous and and so on in Christ. Uh, Let him worry about the details. Let me do the do really what amounts to the easy task of following his will being faithful yeah so michael define it what is god's will well that we the text defines it and that's the nice thing um about what paul is writing here and um that definition is pointing to uh, the verse 10 paul writes um, talking about, uh, yeah, we start, can start of the air quote sentence. Yeah, actually we could start in verse three. Um, but we should probably start in verse, uh, one after the break. Pardon the interruption. This is Andrew. And I want to point your attention to something we've been talking about. Go to ephesiology.com forward slash ephesiology dash laboratory. We want to have people join us in the lab. So if you're willing to do a little research and development to impact your community more for Jesus Christ, please contact us. We want to really encourage you and help you figure out the way that is going to be innovative, creative, and is going to reach others for Jesus. Look forward to talking to you. So just before the break, uh, Michael is getting ready to unre- unravel and reveal the fullness and the mystery of God to us. <laughs> yeah, right. The Holy Spirit was about to work, and uh, we said, wait right there. <laughs> Hold on, Spirit. Hold we, on. We need to take a break. <laughs> yeah. That's funny, isn't just it? Be- like we have any control over that. <laughs> I think that's the joke. <laughs> Keeping it real, Michael. Keeping it real. <laughs> so just before the break, we were starting to ask the question. We've been talking about this idea of what is God's will, and we're getting to the place now, and we were just getting, I just asked Michael, so Michael, what is it? And we were just starting to look at Ephesians chapter one, and uh, I think it lands in verse 10, but you wanted to start us all the way in verse one. So take us where you want us to go. Yeah. So Paul begins the letter by simply saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And, uh, and that's our first hint, that this is something that's important here, that Paul wants to be sure that those who are reading this letter 
are going to understand what the will of God is. And again, we need to always keep in mind that this was a, a letter that was not just intended for the church in Ephesus. In fact, uh, the, some of our ancient manuscripts actually have the word Laodicea there instead of Ephesus. And there are even some manuscripts that have left uh, the the the, um, uh, the addressee out of the letter altogether, as if you could fill in the blank of who you want this letter to go to. Um, <laughs> Paul's intention here was to write a letter, a general epistle, that uh, the churches all over Asia Minor would read. And, and remember now, uh, that at this time, um, the church in uh, Ephesus and in Asia Minor has grown significantly. Um, remember, uh, Acts 19.10, all the residents of Asia Minor had heard the word of the Lord. And again, he repeats that same thing in Acts 19.20. And so there's a significant uh, movement of believers there. And, and Paul wants to be sure that they stay grounded in their understanding of who God is and God's missiological agenda for the church. And, and it's that agenda, what we call this missiological theocentric pursuit of God's mission that is on the heart of Paul. And so he wants to be sure that, that the church understands it, it's equipped to continue it, and that the movement would uh, grow so that more and more people would be worshipers of God. Hmm. And, so, and so he begins it uh, in chapter one with, with uh, this understanding that he is doing what he is doing because of the will of God. And that word by in English, it's dia in uh, the Greek, could be translated from or because of. Uh, but whatever it is, it, Paul wants people to be certain that this thing that is happening, that God has used him uh, that, to be a part of, is his will. And, uh, and so he continues from there, and he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets into this uh, massive sentence, beginning in verse 3. Some scholars look at this and say, well, there's some similarities between uh, what we see here and what is uh, referred to as a baraka, kind of a blessing text uh, that was common in mm -hmm. Jewish literature. I'm not so certain that that was what Paul was intending here, uh, because he his primary uh, focus is on the Gentiles uh, and helping them to understand what God's will is, because the Jews of anybody should have known uh, the will of God. And so, um, and so he begins and says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in mm -hmm. him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
And he continues, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One of the things that cannot escape us as we look at this letter is how frequently Paul refers to God. And that, and that was, as I was reading this and as I've studied this uh, text over the years of, of uh, my ministry, it has just become one of those texts that is a model of this idea of being theocentric. Paul makes reference 133 times to uh, God and the Holy Spirit, the Father, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, um, and somebody with a lot of time on their hands counted the number of Greek words in this text. There are something like 2,400 and something Greek words. And so when you do the math, it's one out of every uh, 18 words, Paul is making a reference to God. And so it, it just can't escape us that Paul is so theocentrically minded as he's trying to communicate these things that there's no way this can be about us. This is all about him. And, and for us to flip this notion of God's will to, to be about us is just a complete, I think, misunderstanding of Paul's intentions here. And so he clearly then says, as Matt, you asked, what is God's will? Well, in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, God's will is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, period, full stop. That's God's will. So what does that look like? I mean, like, what an amazing, like, text, first of all. And, Michael, thanks for, for, for drawing us into that and, and helping us just to see and to hear just God's word and just to see and just understand, like, how Paul's just got this dramatic theocentric approach to Scripture, and he's just completely enthralled with God. Uh, and even just seeing the Trinitarian aspect of his writing, Father, Son, Spirit, all-encompassing in one big, massive run-on sentence in the Greek, right? And here we are, and we've, we, 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 may, we unmangle that a little bit and put it together in an English translation, and we can read it for ourselves today and understand and hear and discern what God's will is. And it is, as you said, um, and as Paul says, his plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What does that uniting look like? What is that? What is that practicality of, of understanding of, of what? Okay, so great, I got that. But now what? What is what is the practical? How does that look? What does that sound like? What does that begin to look like for me personally? For us, is, well, here I go again, looking at, from a self-centered <laughs> standpoint, right? And it's like, no, what is God trying to do? What is He trying to say in all of this? Can you unpack it more for us? Yeah, yeah. And so we go back to the text then, and and we ask that question: If this then is God's will. What does it look like? And so, uh, so everything then in uh, Ephesians chapter one has to be interpreted through that lens. In fact, what I would say is that the rest of the text of Ephesians has to be interpreted through that lens of mm. uniting all things in 
uh, Christ. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so what then does that look like? And we're going to unpack this because next week I'm super excited about having a, a friend of ours uh, on live with us uh, to talk about what this looks like in racial relationships. Um, and, and then of course we'll get into some of the leadership questions. You know, what does it look like about those who are leading and, uh, and how we go about leading? And then what does it look like in the life of the body of the church? And then Paul makes this really beautiful statement, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so what it looks like is that, you know, do the things that God did. And lo and behold, you know, we have four beautiful gospels that were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that show us what that means. Do the things that God did. Hmm. And then, uh, of course, in chapter six, uh, we get into this battle that's before us. Uh, that's not uh, among flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. But it's something that we do together. And, and, uh, and that is key here. For us to understand the letter to the, uh, the, the churches in Asia Minor and to us, um, that the, we're not in this alone. In fact, this letter is not addressed to any individual. And the language that Paul is using, he's always using the second person plural pronouns. It, it's y'all. about y'all. You, all, <laughs> y'all. All y'all. All y'all. All <laughs> y'all. Um, and Paul wants to be clear that this is something about the church. And again, that that if we can get our minds around that, get our minds around the fact that Paul is so theocentric in his uh, understanding of what it is that God uh, uh, has done, then uh, then it can't be about us. It's always about uh, God and the uniting what, of all things. In what Christ. helps What helps me stay focused on this and to remind me to take it off of myself is I have to kind of pull back. To the historical narrative of what we see of God's redemptive plan and go back to the categories of creation, fall, redemption. Because there, I re- there I'm reminded that in creation, we see all things united mm-hmm. under God, right? Heaven and earth. And then we see in the fall context, in the fall narrative, we now all things are separated. They're divided. Um, they're at odds with one another. There's now chaos introduced into the world. And it is now, this is God's redemptive plan. And here Paul is articulating for us, this is God's will. His will is to unite his entirety of his creation back to him again. Um, That makes me feel this big, very, very small, you know, in a major, in a huge, historical context of God's creation. And it helps provide that feel like you can't help, but not read this in a theocentric way then. Yeah. I mean, just Paul repeats over and over again, or at least on three occasions, he says uh, to the praise of his glory. I mean, that's mm-hmm. his focus is that all of this, everything uh, are, are being chosen, are being predestined, are being adopted. All of this is God's will is uh, for the praise of his glory. And uh, but gosh, we have got to get our minds around that. Uh, and if we don't, I'm afraid that we continue on the, the same uh, trek that we're on, missing uh, this incredible blessing that he has promised that is, like he says, um, who's given us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly mm. places. And um, it, yeah, so that becomes key for us. I think Andrew's been cooking up something I can, I can watch on my monitor here. So Andrew, what do you got for us? I'm excited because I think I have uh, since promised multiple times to go through something that I refer to as the story of God and Matt just referenced it. And I got really uber excited because it seems like something I promised months ago, I will finally now make good on. So, so Matt, you were saying the, 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 with the framework, the, the path that we have seen in scripture, this model of creation, fall, uh, redemption. Well, there is a book called The Drama of Scripture by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. They condensed it uh, to one called The True Story of the Whole World. And so they say that typical thing that is, uh, tip, uh, is seen as four parts, like God's story is told in four parts, uh, creation, fall, uh, redemption, and return. Christ is coming back. Uh, if it's told in four parts, they say, well, we look at scripture and we actually see it is in six parts. And this absolutely is rooted in this text. So I will, for those who are uh, engaging with us on ephesiology.com and you are watching this uh, through a video feed, I invite you, if you are not, please go there because I'm about to show on camera what I am talking about. But there are six pieces. Uh, the first piece uh, is like an arrow down. That is creation. This is God uh, instilling in us wholeness. He is making us. We are in his image. Uh, but just as Matt said, then it continues on. Sadly, uh, we fell. Uh, it was chaos. It was not merely an oops, but it was a rejection of God and an attempt uh, to actually become gods, become equal with him. That that can't fly, that can't hang. But I don't want us just to jump to redemption because all of the Old Testament, all of the covenants, these are situations, events, uh, promises that God has given to show that he is pursuing. It's an arrow forward. He is continuing to pursue, show his love, show others who he is, and show them that he wants to be in a, a whole life-giving relationship. Unfortunately, the Old Testament is replete with Israel rejecting God and saying, we appreciate your pursuit, your love, and your lavishing all of this goodness upon us, but we still want to just do things our own way. It then builds to this fourth act, which is the redemption of Christ, uh, the coming uh, that has been promised, the crux of the story. Uh, the best of all things that God making his love known to us by the sacrifice of his son and his, his life, his death and his resurrection. But I get really excited about this and God's will. The story of God is rooted here because the next step is now what? So what we've been talking about is the what, the so what, and the now what? And that's what we've been talking about. Okay, what is God's will for us? Now what? If we've already said, okay, we understand that God's will is the uniting of all things in him. Now what? Well, if we look at this, that fifth act is us reflecting what we saw God do throughout the Old Testament from creation moving forward is that he is chasing others, pursuing them, showing them his love, 
his care for them and says, this is what I am doing. This is why I want to make you whole. Uh, You will be made whole in me. Now we as believers, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, now we roll forward. We run and we say this, we are, uh, we are living this out. You can see what Christ has done in me. And now we go out as reflections of who God is and what he has done. We do what God has done and we point back to him. So we're not doing anything new. We are not saying anything new. We are reflecting his newness in us. And we are pointing all people to a day that Christ will return. This is the sixth symbol. This is the sixth act. Uh, Christ is coming back. He is returning to make all things new, to completely unite all things under his will, where we will rule uh, with him forever, the recreation. So yes, I am excited about this because all things that we see in Ephesians points back to this is who God is. This is what he has done. And now because of who he is and what he has done, this is who we are now in him. And we are alive by just obeying him and doing what he told us to do day in, day out. And I'm out. And that concludes the sermon from Andrew Johnson. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Andrew, that was so great. No, that was so awesome. And I just, I'm so appreciative of you sharing that with us. Cause yes, we have talked about that and you, you've kind of wanted to always illustrate that, uh, that, that story for us in that particular way. And, I think that's helpful. And what it's helpful reminding us of is God's great plan and his work and what he's doing uh, to which we have revealed to us over through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it also reminds us that there is a place for us in his kingdom and there's a place for us and in his time. And we are just not mere specs as much as we are his creation, right? We are creatures of his creation and scripture refers to us as we are just mere dust from dust. We came to dust. We return. But yet there's this great glorious peace here that even he says that we too will rule over the angels one day that we too are inheritance of this promised kingdom that uh, is far greater than we could ever imagine. And so there's this um, dichotomy to which we exist within. And there's a beauty to that, that there is a place for us in this, in this period of time as God is working out his plan in this world. Yeah. And I, and I like that too. I, I mean, I like, it, it certainly uh, illustrates what it is that Paul is saying in, in uh, Ephesians one, that all things are going to be united. There's mm-hmm. going to be this great restoration of what God had intended. Uh, but but the beauty of it, as we get as we think about ephesiology, and as we've looked at, you know, at how that movement began, uh, and then as we look uh, through the rest of this epistle, uh, Ephesians, what we're going to see is that this a part of this mystery is that the Gentiles are also included in this, mm. and uh, and we can't. I, I mean, I think this is critical for us as we think about. Uh, th- this idea of uniting what God has been doing throughout all of history, uh, th- trying to unite everything uh, into Christ, that we can't escape the fact that God does work and has worked outside of the context of the Jewish people. And, uh, and we see that um, beautifully in um, uh, the, Acts, the end of Acts chapter 18, uh, and then going into Acts chapter 19, it, we, we didn't talk ab- uh, that much about this, but, um, you know, this this whole story with Apollos, um, 
who was eloquent in his argument with scripture uh, and ultimately him uh, having clarity on this as he interacts with Priscilla and Aquila. And I love what, what uh, Luke says about him. He says that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And, uh, and I love that because of the focus of um, Apollos on the restoration of the Jews to follow what God had always intended them in this uniting of all things in Christ. You know, historically, we know that uh, they missed that. They, um, they didn't quite understand it. And, and more than anybody, perhaps Paul was one of those who didn't understand what the responsibilities that the Jews had. But in spite of that, God still left himself with a witness uh, among Gentiles. And I think that's illustrated in, in uh, chapter 19, verse 10 in Acts. He says, um, uh, Luke writes, you know, Paul has been in the, the hall of Tyrannaeus uh, teaching, this philosophical hall. And uh, he says that the, this continued for two years so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And, um, and here, what I find interesting is the juxtapositioning of what, uh, how Apollos was engaging the Jews and how, and how uh, Paul was engaging both Jews and Greeks. The Apollos engages with the graphe, uh, scripture says, uh, or, or the word says, uh, and literally when uh, Luke records that he uses the scriptures to prove that Christ was a Jesus, it is that word graphe. Mm -hmm. um, but here in Acts 19.10, uh, Luke records that it's, that it's the logos. And we've talked about this, I think we have talked about this before, that uh, 600 years before Paul arrives on the scene, there's a philosopher by the name of Heraclitus who um, begins to teach about the Logos philosophy, this Logos who was the reason, uh, who was before uh, everything else. And in fact, uh, from, from the Logos is uh, creation. And so, so God, and this is what I think is beautiful about this, is that God was, was leaving himself with a witness, even through the Greek philosophy, that uh, when Paul arrives on the scene in Ephesus, it's as if he is saying that this logos that you all have believed from the philosophy of Heraclitus, let me make that absolutely clear to you now. This is the logos of the Lord. He is the creator. And of course, uh, John addresses that in his prologue. Um, and we have that beautiful story that Jerome shares with us as he's in the city of Ephesus and the bishops are coming to him and saying, John, we want you to write the story about the Savior. And John says, I'll, I will do that if you pray and fast. And as they prayed and fasted and when they broke the fast, uh, uh, Jerome tells us that John broke out in his prologue. In the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was God. And so it's, it's these, these faithful saints, uh, Paul and John and others, who are making absolutely clear that God has been revealing himself. His intention has always been to unite all things in Christ. And now they're making it clear that this is what he was doing 
in the city of Ephesus. And so parallel, you know, with, with God's redemptive work through uh, his people, Israel, it, we see God working redemptively through uh, the philosophy of our Gentiles. And I think that's, I, 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 I don't think that we can miss this. Um, and I don't, and I think it's a danger if we do, uh, because what it tells us is that there's only this one way that we get to uh, this redemptive activity, uh, when in fact God is not leaving himself without witness, uh, no matter where the people are or who the people are. God intends this mystery of the gospel to be clear to everyone, and uh, he is actively working to do that even now. To unite all, panta, yeah, all things, uh, things in heaven and things on earth, not just things that are Jewish. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, leaving no stone unturned uh, seems like this is the 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 mode and the method of of God uh, for for His creation, for His world, for His church, for His people, for those who know Him and obey him and those who don't even it is his plan. And that is his will. And his desire is to make himself known to all. And uh, we see that so played out. And this is, as you rightly said at the beginning of this, uh, as the beginning of our conversation here today, Michael, this is like the foundation to all that we're talking about with ephesiology. This right here is this understanding of the will of God and how we begin to interpret and understand Ephesians, what's happening in Ephesus uh, through the ministry of Paul and through the disciples and through the ministry of Christ. And as God is continuing to work and through his Holy Spirit, this is kind of like that. This is this main thing. This is the thing that we have to keep our eyes in the prize. Am I, am I correct in saying that? A- absolutely. And I think that's what Paul's getting at uh, and what he intends for us to understand when he says that we have been blessed. Uh, even as he has chosen us, as he has predestined us for adoption, all of that is in the context of uniting all things in Christ. And so then the answer to the question about God's will is simple. It's, uh, It's this, it's I have been chosen, I, we, the church collectively, that that uh, beautiful congregation of saints have been chosen and we have been predestined. In fact, we have been adopted as God's very children to do this, period. That's, what, that's why we are here. It's not about us. It's not about me figuring out what job I'm supposed to do or or where I'm supposed to live, or what ministry I'm supposed to be involved in. Mm. Uh, it is solely about us participating, because we have been predestined. If we are saints, truly, we have been chosen. Uh, if we are a part of God's family, we have been adopted to be a part of uniting all things in Christ. Mm. It, it almost sounds like if I'm going to tease out kind of the anecdote I shared earlier and what you're saying, it seems like uh, the church needs more practitioners and less preachers. Uh, please go to relevant.com and look up an article by Matt Till. But Nice plug. Uh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> in truth, 
in truth, this isn't just a, a shameless plug for Matt and his brilliant writing skills and reflections on scripture, but the truth of the matter is all that you just said, Michael, all of that we are is to be driven to the glory of God. Then this is something that we can be brandishing and bringing to everybody who is a believer in Christ, who has been adopted as his son or daughter and not just say, okay, yeah, isn't God's will amazing? Great. So what ministry are you involved in? Mm, right. uh, what church are you going to? What church are you working for? What missions organization are you working for? This instead is about, you know, foreshadowing the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. This is for everyone who is calling Christ Lord. And it is for the engineer. It is for the teacher. It is for the stay at home mom. It is for everyone because they do fall under the all things in all of creation things on heaven and things on earth mm. it's for all of us to participate in the work of ministry because we are to be practitioners absolutely i mean at the end of the end of the day uh, and i've been saying this for a couple months now that you know when we stand before the lord he's not going to say oh hey you're andrew weren't you you were the associate pastor at neartown church weren't you and uh, you know what he doesn't care he wants to know that you are a part of uniting all things in Christ. And he looks at you and me and Matt and all of us, not in terms of who we worked for or uh, what organization we're a part of or what ministry that we joined. That's not in God's mind. God wants us to be a part of his business and that business being uniting all things in Christ. Man, guys, what an what an awesome conversation today, and uh, I'm feeling super encouraged by it. Um, and just I'm still I'm just typing notes here for you to away today, and I feel like I'm being a student as much as I'm a participant. Absolutely. But um, man, Michael, I'm just repeating these words to you, uh, that you just said a little while ago to myself. It's not about our school we go to. It's not about our career. It's not about our ministry. It's not about life goals or even this idealized future that we have but it's about participating in God's will. And that is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And um, man, what just, oh, that's the fresh air and just liberating in so many ways right now uh, for me and my soul. Um, and I hope for those listening as well too, are, are receiving that good word. And man, that just liberates us to do whatever it is that the Lord is putting on our hearts today and for us and whatever he's put before you today, if you're even Andrews, you're saying, man, if you're a, a husband, if you're a wife, if you are a father, if you are a mother, a single, uh, whatever it is that the Lord has put before you now, whatever is in your plate, that is your place right now to be participating in God's will um, in the uniting of all things. And, Man, that's what we want to be about. This is what this is what God wants us to be about, and um, and His church, and that frees us up in so many ways, and I think has so many implications for us as believers, and even as those who are practitioners in the church. Yeah, and yeah, I, you know, I keep thinking about the idea that you you came up with, Matt, about our ephesiology laboratory. That, that that's what that is. I mean, we, we want to be in a position mm. where people who are thinking in this way about, well, 
what does it look like to unite all things in Christ? Um, and, and for us to work collaboratively uh, as the body of Christ to think about how do we engage effectively or and even more so how do we how do we see what god is doing in our communities and effectively engage in this uh, activity of god's business of god's i mean we're a part of it and i frequently talk about the fact that as adopted children that we have this new identity that uh, it looks nothing like the past and it points us to fulfilling the Father's business. And so uh, we want to engage with people to think creatively about what it is, uh, how do we participate with God in what it is that he's doing to unite all things in Christ. Yeah, amen to that. And I think that that's a great place for us to end today and just for our conversation. And I agree, just I think the the beauty of that laboratory is just something in which we we really envision as being a gift to the church and realizing, uh, man, there's there's really like no limitation when you think about it. There's almost nothing that can't be touched when we are talking about uniting all things in Christ and participating in his will for that. Uh, which is where a lot of these radical ideas and (laughs) these creative ideas will start to come from and and germinate from as well, too. So with that, we want to invite you as the listener to continue this conversation with us by joining us uh, at ephesiology.com and being part of our community. Uh, Join us online at ephesiology.com. You can get exclusive content, the video portion, even as mentioned earlier uh, by Andrew, uh, the video portion of these uh, podcasts as well. uh, So you can see our smiling and crazy looks and faces at each other. and uh, engage with us that way as well as uh, we've got some online discussion boards there too uh plus also you can learn about the laboratory and uh and even ask some questions and engage with us with that we'd love to uh, talk to you more about that as well as as some of our listeners and be sure to like our facebook page engage with us there as well for the content which we share uh, on facebook we'd love to hear from you at that place and of course, subscribe to Physiology Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and be sure to leave us a five-star rating review and uh, that helps other people find this content uh, and benefit from it just like you. So for Michael, Andrew, and myself, thanks for listening and we will catch you next time.